Today I'm talking with Eric Broughton. Uh, I'm super excited about this. This is probably one of the first people that I know that we has actually had over three exits, successful exits, and is working on his fourth. Uh, so Eric has got an interesting story about how he went from uh, working after college into consulting, from consulting into uh, his first startup, uh, his first startup being sold to RealPage, um, and then just continuing from there the success. And so I'm super excited to bring you this story um, and his experiences. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Eric Brock. Okay, well, today I'm going to talk with Eric Broughton. Uh, so welcome, Eric. I'm super happy to have you here and uh, talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey. You're the first person I think we've interviewed with uh, three successful exits under your belt. So welcome. Great. Thank you very much, Todd. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So kind of digging into this, um, you know, you've done a bunch of startups and you've had a bunch of success, but like, I'm curious about going from like college to like some of the jobs that you did kind of post that. And then tell me about how like you transitioned to like doing your first startup and why. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so South Dakota School of Mines, technology right up there. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, we have that. Uh, graduated uh, from from tech and it was, it was, I think right out of the gate, it was where my decisions we're lying. Where do I choose which path to go? And I had opportunities, you know, like a lot of a lot of tech grads from from Boeing to you know Northrop Grumman, uh, Microsoft, other other like bigger. You went the Microsoft route as well, and a lot, a lot of these bigger opportunities. Actually, I did not have an opportunity in Microsoft. <laughs> I should clarify there, <laughs> but I had a lot of bigger opportunities in different companies. Uh, but. Uh, the one that struck me was this with Cargill Steel in North Star Steel, Arizona. And why it was exciting is because it was a brand new steel mill built in 1995. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and the fact that all the technology was, 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 was still in transition and really becoming a new steel mill. So that was a concept uh, to me that, that drew me there. And, uh, and, and so my wife and I moved to um, uh, Kingman, Arizona to start our, start our career journey. And that was probably the first thing is just making that decision to go where the, where the technology had just begun. Okay. And so then as you were there for a while, like what made you want to go do a startup? Like how did you kind yeah. of just get into the corporate gig and you said, hey, I can, I can do this and I can, I, I've got, or I've got an idea for a startup. And, you know, mm-hmm. you did your entire kind of startup career has really been in kind of real estate. And so how did those mm-hmm. two pieces go from like, you know, an interesting opportunity right out of college to, hey, I should do something in real estate in the startup world? Yeah, it took a lot longer before I went into the entrepreneurial world. So I should probably take a step back. I'm, I'm at the steel mill. I'm electrical engineer uh, by education. And I go into the steel mill as a plant engineer. I'm working on the floor. I, I quickly move up and I have a department. The f- and, uh, and we had four shifts. So here I am, you know, 22 years old from South Coast School Mines and, and imagining managing people that were everything from 25-year-olds to like 65-year-olds mm-hmm. in, this, uh, in this desert environment. And, then, and let's just say there wasn't exactly the same work ethic as South Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> There's some Arizona mindset was a little bit different at this time. Uh, so that was kind of a, a culture shock for me. Uh, but uh, one thing I was able to do is get some of the technology because I did internships as well leading up to that. And I was able to use some of the technology to reduce our changeover times. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was about a 15-minute changeover to go from maybe three rebar, size three rebar to four or five or six size rebar. Uh, so making those changes. And by having the programming, working with the technology team to move our setups into a database and then moving them back uh, for certain perfect environment setups, before they were 
printing them out and putting them on screens. And then I was able to get that built up until the point where they said, hey, Eric, do you want to be our IT manager? I said, well, let me think about that a little bit. And, well, I can be covered in steel dust every day and shower before I go to bed. Or I can be that guy that sits up in the office and says, you know what, let's make the bits and bytes go here and there. And that was a lot more, uh, I would say, enjoyable from that perspective. Uh, but And I was still able to actually see things happen. So I'd make technology changes. And because we integrated directly with our programmable logic controllers on the plant floor, I can see them go from a database on down, and I could use kind of both sides where I'm out the plant. Uh, so that's where I really started in the technology side, and um, and it was mostly Oracle. And I had okay. four books on my shelf that were Oracle books, and two, and then I got this call from this recruiting company, and two of the books on the shelf were written by this company called Tusk, the Ultimate Software Consultants. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is you know to me at the time that was. That was like a you know McKinsey and Company of, of Oracle Consultant. Like these guys are reaching out, so I just ju- leapt at the opportunity and moved to Chicago. So it re- still hadn't had my entrepreneurial roots. I had entrepreneurial, and um, that was kind of an exciting project I did even at uh, even at North Star Steel or Cargill Steel. Is that we had an electric arc furnace, and that mm-hmm. electric arc furnace you're arcing electricity across to melt down the steel. And that was probably it's equivalent of about twenty five thousand homes, about fifty megawatts uh, going into this this uh, vat uh, melting down the steel. And by collaborating and, and networking, I was able to learn uh, that we had an energy division at Cargo that bought and sold energy. And this is during kind of the Enron energy crisis when they were just mm-hmm. taking advantage of the West Coast. And this is an Arizona property. Uh, we were able to figure out how to whenever there was downtime in the mill they would pop up on the mill operators or the electric arc furnace operators a monitor and say, yeah, let's, let's drop this down. Uh, we're going to be down for three hours or four hours. We would send a message to Cargo Corporate and sell that electricity in the open market. Oh, and we made yeah. more money selling electricity in the summer of 99 than we made selling steel. So that was just kind of like that. That's oh, crazy. okay. Yeah, I could, there's more to this, and that was going to help. So I would call that like my entrepreneurial journey. Yep. And it had some, had some more money like that. Uh, and then went on to uh, Chicago, had some great projects, uh, Northern Trust. I was a data architect for their wealth management platform. Uh, that was mm-hmm. fascinating, seeing like the Bush family or the Gretzky family. And uh, biggest thing was I was learning like how much money people make while they sleep by these sweep accounts. <laughs> you know, like, oh, my goodness, how does this happen? You know, yeah. South Dakota kid, I'm like watching them make more money than I make in a month, you know, by just like, I'm just going to take this money from this account, put it in this one and earn interest a couple of days. Until I want to do something with it. Yeah, exactly. Or, or trying to date architect like, you know, their artwork or horses or, you know, their cars and, and put that into their net worth. It was pretty fascinating. But my favorite project was Archipelago. Uh, it was ArcaX. So a group of entrepreneurs bought the Pacific Stock Exchange. So you've probably seen that movie with Will, Will Smith. It's a, a Pursuit of Happiness where he's sitting in the steps. And, well, this group bought that and brought it all online in Chicago. Hmm. And that became... The foundation, actually, even still today for the New York Stock Exchange, I was able to work with Steve Rubinow, who was the CIO of ArcaX at the time, and he became the CIO of New York Stock Exchange, and he was able to do some really cool projects uh, there. So it was just fascinating. And, uh, and through, that, through the course of that experience, uh, then l- another little transition uh, is I was hired away by one of the executives at Tusk who left and said... Uh, Hey, Eric, you've been doing great with projects and technology, uh, but you also seem to be the guy on projects that get like the next contract and always seem to add on more consultants. 
what are you thinking about going and, and starting this division for me and like a general manager almost uh, like a global consulting global uh, fractional use of of database administrators and consultants um, and I said that, that sounds pretty exciting so that's when I left Tusk to join IT Convergence and I was the global solutions manager uh, and built up some projects. I even came back to South Dakota and worked with Gateway a little bit, and had mm-hmm. had some uh, had some clients uh, in the in the area. But but that was where I where I really cut my teeth on sales. So I was very fortunate, even before my entrepreneurial journey, building up this muscle of of innovation, and then understanding the sales side of it, understanding the 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 value of of EBITDA and revenue and AP and AR and all these you know accounting terms and managing groups. Even before, and I think that laid a good foundation for me, which led me kind of that entrepreneurial journey. Is I also became president of Chicago's Oracle User Group, okay. and and uh, and there and that's where that's and that's what really by raising my hand and saying, "Yeah, I'll take part in that and volunteer and run in that group," I, I was able to land a meeting in the Sears Tower. It was so cool, and I was able to get you know Sears Tower. Basically, I had four sponsors paying for this thing for the room as a as Chicago Oracle User Group. And I had some great speakers, and then there's a company, Amley Residential, AMLI, was just bought by Morgan Stanley Real Estate for about $2.5 billion. And they're a big Oracle, Oracle shop, and they had all these real estate assets. And their CIO just happened to attend my meeting, saw how I managed it, saw what I was doing, that I knew the business side, the technology and you know sales, I guess, a little bit. And he said, hey, we were just acquired by Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley has asked us to create this consulting entity within Morgan Stanley Real Estate, $100 billion asset center management. He said, I understand real estate. I've had to use consultants for this Oracle stuff. Would you be interested in partnering with me and building out a consulting arm, like an entrepreneurial consulting arm within Morgan Stanley Real Estate? I thought, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard. And this is probably around 2006 and, and jumped on board, started doing some cool projects. Um, but then, you know, Safeguard Self Storage, we retrofitted all their all the different environments and and I get fascinated by this stuff like start geeking out because we were talking about we started to figure out how you have your elevator bank and and we said hey we should do revenue management and just charge like a buck more as you as you get as you're close to the elevator because the further you get from the elevator the more the more pain, painful it is you should charge more for closer to the elevator you know just things like that little revenue management things start building those out uh, but then the financial crisis hit and that's mm-hmm. where this is like 2008, and we, we could kind of sense it in advance. We were supposed to go to China, and we were supposed to work with 25 different other companies and start to take our, take our real estate technology. That got delayed three months. Then it was delayed another three months, and then just things just went crazy in 2008. So they really feeling that. that and, and where Morgan Stanley wasn't even sure they were going to be a business pretty yeah. soon. Changed their charter and really had to wear that entrepreneurial hat then. And a couple of things happened. Uh, one, I went back to my Oracle roots and I landed a large project with a port of Oakland. Uh, and this kind of goes back to I guess, to people that are hopefully watching. It is really about the grind and the hustle. You know, when it comes down to it, you know, you just have to just figure it out and persist and persevere and get it done. And this is one of those situations, you know, could have went, you know what? Life sucks. I'm going to go, you know, put in my resume on, at the time monster and go work for some corporation. Or I said, you know what, let's, let's figure this out. Landed a nice project, Port of Oakland. Uh, but then also said, you know what, let's create a product. And that's what we did is we created um, uh, our first platform was called Yield Vision. And it was, uh, it was a data warehouse. And uh, also so happened, 
about six months earlier, Mark Benioff was in Chicago. And uh, this is when Salesforce was still kind of kind of pretty pretty nascent, you know. Yeah. And they had uh, and they had this luncheon. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say I'm like me and Mark Benioff and three other dudes. It was like sixty, you know, forty. Yeah, exactly. We're, we hang out, we surf together. No, it was uh, it was about forty fifty people in attendance, but it was still impactful because you hear this guy talking about this software as a service concept of just. Mm-hmm. It sounds so simple now. Yeah, do a subscription. It's so, and and at that time, you know, and I just come from that IT convergence where I was providing a database administrator for forty hours a month, or a developer for forty hours a month, and it and I thought, okay, why couldn't you do this from a software perspective? And this is way before the cloud. You know, this yeah. is kind of maybe we have an outsourced data center, and so that really struck. So the first thing we tried to do is a data warehouse with that kind of software as a service concept, mm-hmm. and. It was a great idea, excellent platform. The problem was our market, you know, product fit, <laughs> not the market fit, because real estate, people do not want to pay $250,000 for you to map out your data sets. They want it to work out of the box, and they want to pay fractional, and they can pass it on to their asset owners. And that was not the case here. Uh, so that was, we sold about three projects, wasn't enough. Uh, we just kind of let that sit for a little bit. But then what we did is, because we're building this data warehouse, we're able to see where the where the first uh, real estate entities to return was going to be multifamily um, uh, apartment buildings. But we we're also able to see that a big gap was marketing dollars. We okay. saw these huge swings of marketing. Some properties paying tens of thousands of dollars a month, some a thousand dollars a month. And we said, look at the revenue, look at the revenue per unit. What's the difference here? And we started asking questions, and no one really knew. So we said, okay, let's figure this out. And it's, it's, again, it's commonplace now, but we were one of the first ones to actually take every ad and we put in, um, we put in you know, our little one, one pixel trackers. So every right. time it was drawn, it kicked back to us. We'd have yep. unique phone numbers for every unique email addresses uh, for each one. It sounds so silly, but apartments.com, rent.com, Craigslist, you know, all the different names that were going wild at that time. They didn't know which one worked, so they'd be like, oh, the apartments.com guy brought in bagels. We're going to go that, 1500 bucks a month per property. You're going, how do you know? And it was crazy. So we started to give them these data sets, and, uh, and a lot of times it was Craigslist, actually, that was winning for these guys, and they didn't even huh. know it. Uh, so all this like uh, real estate data, and that's, that was like a true entrepreneurial figure things out, create it, and then really that, that flywheel, you know, you read the good to great book. And that flywheel is true. You're just like pushing so hard to get it just moving. But then once it starts rolling, boom, that gets pretty fun. And you just you can just feel it, momentum kicking up. And that was uh, more of a true entrepreneurial journey uh, for, for, the, for that platform. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, I guess the, the, the takeaway to this is you really leveraged some consulting engagements to find kind of the problem. And then basically yeah. said, is this problem something that lots of people have and can we turn it into a product? Um, and I think that's kind yeah. of unique because I think there's a mentality of building hours versus building product, right? And I think yeah. that, you know, there's very few, I think we've all kind of seen consulting companies that they don't build product very well uh, because they're right. always in the mindset of building more and more hours. And so that's kind of mm-hmm. interesting uh, that you kind of pivot from, I see an opportunity with a large client that I can turn into something yeah. that's a repeatable product and then generate recurring revenue at a time where that was kind of unique in general. And so oh, yeah. talk a little bit about the six years of doing that. It, you 
know, your exit was to real page. And so, um, yes. you know, I'm sure that was a lot of work, but, uh, tell me a little bit about just kind of the growth in that from having a, a product and understanding the market to an exit yeah. with, you know, a pretty large organization. Yeah, it was, it was such a exciting growth period, even personally, professionally yeah, on so many levels, you know, building up a team. Uh, we were about 55 employees at one point, uh, and even having your own office, it was really, it was really an exciting time, uh, and it was really collaborative. And, and we definitely didn't have work from home, you know. Maybe ever, uh, maybe a couple of Fridays, but uh, you know, we did things like, like uh, you know, get everybody together. Maybe a beer cart Thursday, you know. Yeah. One of the guy walks around with a Captain America mask, and you have, yeah. you know, you get everybody awesome. together and have good times. <laughs> yeah, exactly. White elephant uh, at, at Christmas and different things. And I would love my favorite environment was lunchtime, actually. You know, we would just and we we built such a trusting environment. We'd we'd have you know some people explaining concepts of the, their religion or how, where they grew up. And uh, I'll never forget, we had two employees from China, and one grew up in the country, and one grew up in the city, and they had such different perspectives. You know, one was part of the Communist Party, and one was not. And just having that, and then just every, I really miss those conversations. Uh, that was pretty enjoyable having that and building up that crew right in downtown Chicago. And the, the other thing we're able to do was that uh, we able to, we, we got a great space. Uh, so another thing about just being in the hustle and talking to a bunch of people found out that there was this gaming company that, that lost their contract for Tony Hawk. It was when they had those skateboards you could jump on and it sensed that they lost their contract. We're able to scoop up their office space, just pennies mm-hmm. in the dollar. Uh, so we got a beautiful space. It's a 30-second floor. You know, again, some South Dakota kid. I'm in the corner office. I'm looking at, you know, Daily Plaza. The 30s. I'm like, oh, this is pretty sweet. That's how we yeah. roll, baby. Yeah, exactly, roll. exactly. That's what we do. It was good times. So it's definitely something to write home to mom about and, uh, you know, take some pictures. Uh, so what do you think, that, though, that from a great. culture standpoint? What you're kind of describing is building a culture, I think. Um, yes. And, and so, and I think as an entrepreneur, the first one is always kind of a little bit strange because I think you don't know what yeah. culture is. You know what you what you value, and you mm-hmm. know what you're trying to espouse. And I think as you add people, you maybe kind of organically add people that are kind of like your culture. And I think it takes you some period of time to realize, okay, well, I'm getting to the point where I'm interviewing people that maybe don't have the same cultural fit, or I'm moving to the next yeah. startup, and I have a more clear idea of what I want to do. So, tell me what the role of kind of culture played in that. Yeah, that's uh, fascinating. Very, very insightful, and that build up the culture. And definitely, when you hit plateau, when you're at five people, different mindset. And then you're at ten, different mindset, and you're kind of you're still. Then that about twenty to twenty five is when you can't really talk to everybody every day, and you start to get different. And then it's so important to have from five to fifty and above. That's where it's like it's your managers, people that you hire are really creating a culture that you don't see on a daily basis. So you kind of have to, but they're also taking cues from you. Uh, yeah. So you're spot on in that, and that what you do, what you say, and really what you measure and how you reward people, that flows up and down. And you can't please everybody. There's just, it's never going to work that way. So you have to figure out what that path is. And then also relatively still young, you know, early 30s, uh, at that time, yeah, still still learning a lot um, about how to work with people. But I think the, the thing that's never goes out of style is, you know, integrity, doing th- doing the right things, treating people with respect, 
you know, honoring all these, you know, we'll go through HR laws and things, but that's just common decency. So as long as you do those, what should be basic foundational things, then on top of that, you build your business culture, which is we do valuable things for our clients. Our sales team don't stretch the truth. And it's amazing how when you set the bar or set the standard for, for those type of conversations, how that just flows down and permeates across the board. Yeah, So, so I think it's pretty darn important. It is. And I think you got to be good stewards. I think as you become a leader in a larger organization, being a good steward of that, right? Basically Mm -hmm. encouraging people that are doing the right things and then basically stamping it out when you see where it's not going. Um, And I think I would say my journey at Concur, that's probably one of the key elements of of our, you know, success and adding more and more people that like you had to be a steward, everybody had to be a steward of it. Um, And if it didn't happen, you know, you had to wash people out pretty quick. Right. And that was probably something I learned is I was not quick enough to wash people out in the beginning. Uh, Definitely something to learn is you you kind of thought, oh, maybe this is, maybe it's just me and you question it. And then as time goes on, you recognize, (laughs) oh my goodness, yeah, this is just not. And and the flip side, it's not good for that person either. If they're not a fit for there and then you see them flourish somewhere else, it's not because you were bad or they were bad. It's just that it wasn't the right fit. Uh, And that's, that's usually where it ends. Mm-hmm. Well, kind of pivoting, you know, it's like I always think of uh, entrepreneurs when they come to us, we, they're either kind of fitting into kind of one of three categories. They're either kind of strong or have a natural inclination in sales, product, or technical. And so, mm-hmm. you know, your background's kind of interesting where you maybe had more of a technical engineering bent, um, but like you mm-hmm. basically quickly went through like finance and you went through operations and then you went through sales. Mm-hmm. And so at this point in time, like what would you say your like core skill set looked like? I mean, do you think that really mm-hmm. sales was kind of the one that you led with? Or, or it was more kind of operational and how systems worked? Yeah. yeah. I, I still can't fit into one of those. I have to do That's all good. three. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it works because um, I'm sure I've missed out on some inter- opportunities because I've been too analytical. And, uh, it, it, but it allows me at, li- at this stage of my life, you know, I'm going to be 50 pretty soon here. And, uh, it allows me to take a step back and say, okay, where's this product going? What are my margins and what is it going to look like? Can I have enough sales conversations to clarify and confirm there's a there's likely going to be a product market fit? And I can iterate through those conversations in my head a lot of times before I get too far down a path. Um, and, and that's allowed me to you know, invest, invest and better. I still need to do a better job there to, to mentor, you know, improve my mentorship and work with different groups. And then, and then with, uh, okay to charge my, my, my company today, you know, look at that. And, and even now, uh, you know, looking at different business models, growing it, that's the thing about an entrepreneur. If you think you have a great idea, wait until you start building your company. Um, and right. I mean, you've been there so many times, You have to pivot, you have to change, and you have to do it intelligently and, and, and pragmatically and take what the world gives you. And, and you know, there's, only very, there's very few people that can bend the world to their will. And I think even those people, it probably didn't really bend. It probably just evolved into their will. But, yeah, that's why we hear about them. You know, I, honestly, Eric, I would actually pull this back to maybe your education and school mm-hmm. of minds and engineering in general. Yes. I, I think that there's a pragmatic um, – 
set of skills that like I think School of Minds gave to us about like just problem yes. solving, right? And so yes. I think you had to have a reasonable acumen. You had to be somewhat intelligent. You had to work hard. But I think this kind of mm -hmm. methodical approach of like breaking down large problems into small problems. And if some of it happens to be in finance, if some of it happens to be in operations, exactly. if it's something in product or if it's in a sales process, what are you doing? You're taking a system and you're breaking it down and you're solving it. And so exactly. I think um, I think that probably is a foundation that probably enabled you to continue to collect skills on top of that. But I do think that's a foundation element that I think served probably both of us well. You're absolutely right. That 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 we already came to school of minds because you know we knew we were we were smart in our school and our in our smaller ponds. And then you go to school of minds in this bigger pond and you're just surrounded by all these super smart people and and then you kind of find your way. And even at even at minds I didn't I didn't thrive until I learned to do to study with a group. It sounds kind of silly, but I, I was kind of like doing it on my own. And yeah. I was at Delta Sigma Phi in the fraternity as electrical engineer. I think I was probably one of the only ones. <laughs> so it's kind of like I was on my own trying to figure these things out until then I became a study group. And then, wow, lo, lo and behold, Dean's List, you know, it's, it's like, but it, but it took collaboration. It took that yeah. continued curiosity. And then back to your point, that foundational element of just bringing it out. That's something else about school minds is that there's not much coddling involved. It's uh, you know it's kind of a oh you don't get that huh well better figure it out. <laughs> it's, you know no one's like hey Dr. Simonson where well, I can't figure this out could you could you help me? He's not there to coddle you. You know here's what the problem is. Let me help you figure it out and then move on. The second piece to it, which I don't think came from uh, your education that I think is important in these companies, especially for something you went through a scale, is how do you apply that kind of analytic nature and then basically deal with people, right? I think you see people, yeah. lots of smart people that know the answer. But I think uh, the ability to kind of mold and figure out what type of talent you need and then the ability mm -hmm. to get the most out of them, I think, is a yes. skill set that like all CEOs or all founders need to kind of invest in. What, what's, yes. what's your experience on that side of it? Because it's, it's one thing mm -hmm. to know what the path is, but it's like, you know, you're not doing all the work. You got, you got to hire people right. to get work done. Exactly. It, it, kind of going back to School Minds as well as I played football there. And um, some people don't know, but when I busted up my knee, I even played in the band for the oh, year, you know, so I didn't really did. Yeah. I, yeah. You would not see that one coming. Yeah, exactly. And then I, I did student government, participated in there and just really active. And uh, I, it was I was always a leader in, in high school in different activities. And then I kind of took a couple of years off of that mindset in college at, at Minds. And then I then I became reengaged and the education plus those leadership skills have really transcended well into the entrepreneurial world. So I was very happy about that, about how, you know, just kept engaged. But you're right. You have to lead. You have to inspire. And you have to feel the – and read the room as well about what is the – what does it feel like? What's Especially when you're speaking at different groups and, you know, whether I – one of the companies I managed was in San Antonio, Texas. I'm down there every other week. I had a team in an office. Um, and, and we had to go from 22 employees, and I had to cut it down to about – about 12 employees, you know, so trying to manage that environment and, and rally the troops and, and, and share the right mindsets that you can, that you can grow. So a hundred percent. Yeah. 
So let's talk a little bit like you sold that last business to, to RealPage yeah. and you were there for about mm-hmm. a year and a half. And so maybe mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about the difference from, you know, running your own shop and, you know, I don't have any employees, 50 odd number of employees and then going to this larger organization. Skill sets yeah. are different, right? The, you know, control is different. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, a year and a half is not chump change in that type of environment. Mm-hmm. So tell me what worked, what didn't. Was it difficult? Yeah, definitely difficult, very difficult, different challenge. You go from the startup world where it's kind of an us versus the world type mentality. And if we if it's not working this way, let's let's figure it out. Whereas once you've sold your company to a different group, um, you know, like a real page, large public company at the time. And and, and I was fortunate enough to initially actually I'll, I'll kind of talk through that journey. Even selling the company, my initial job was to lead our lead the vision that we sold, you know, which continue doing my day job. And it was, hey, can we keep 60, 67% of our clients engaged in the next three months? And I was able to hit about 72%. So I was able to do that. And then I was able to get another opportunity to manage about four other divisions. And that's when I became president of one of the divisions. That was after probably about nine months. Uh, so within about nine months, I was able to earn the trust of the CEO by sitting down and having very frank conversations. Um, that was nice out of the gate because I was able to continue to be who I was, you know, yep. and you get in these meetings where uh, they do these product product control meetings and you sit and I always sit right next to the CEO. So if he wanted to ask a tough question, I was there ready to answer it. Uh, so I, I thought that was the right thing to do. And uh, and continued on to the, to the very end, which is why I think he bought my second company too. Cause I, cause we, we always, uh, he always knew I was bringing the real deal. Uh, but uh, the difference was that what this is the tough part about large corporations is, you know, I'll use the word politics because it's the best thing I can think of, is that it's not as much you versus the world. It's, it's you versus uh, other divisions, other groups, because you're fighting for funding. Yeah. Uh, some people are worried about the newcomer coming in and there's politics, a little bit of Game of Thrones action, who's next in line, who's got this opportunity. Uh, so you have to be more weary, wary, not, well, I became weary, but uh, you have to be wary of all these different, of all these different, uh, groups that you're, that you're, uh, I guess battling for lack of a better term on a daily basis. And it really does take up resources and, and brain, brain time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, the way I describe it from my time at Concur was um, I got away from the work that I enjoyed doing, right? It was, you know, like you're protecting your teams, you're doing a lot of budget, you're doing a lot of HR, there's a lot of politics, um, and Mm -hmm. you got away from just building and shipping product um, and and stuff. And so I think it it goes from pretty black and white in a startup world to kind of a lot of gray. Mm Um, yes. and, you know, it's a different exactly. set of skills um, and people are successful in that. Uh, But I I definitely reached my peak at one point in time too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. It's and it's it, yeah, it's not good or bad. It's different because yeah. obviously at a company of that size, when you're when you're pushing hundreds of millions in revenue, you can't run that same way. Yeah, and you want to. And, and I was able to. I guess I, I felt more about that mindset and muscle at Inhabit where I was previously, where you're looking at, hey, we can't build all the cool things that we need to do. We only have so many resources and allocated funds, and we have. Other investors and, and in real pages, you know, case public investors that need to have that return on investment, and you have to figure that out. And that's to your point about the budgetary process. While you get really savvy at your financials, pretty darn quick about yeah. where to where to manage and where to move uh, move resources. Yeah. 
So after that, you uh, joined eSupply Systems, and that's right. uh, this was like a, an existing company that needed some turnaround help. So you know, that's mm -hmm. again kind of a different skill set than building something. Um, yeah. And um, I'm curious about a that how that opportunity came about, and then b just like what that was like. I mean, I'm assuming there's a lot of cost and operational efficiencies, some things you've yeah. done in the past, and then but you know, and again, this was another one that you sold the real page, so that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, it was a good good exit for the investors. Uh, main reason is, uh, uh, well, I was exposed to the opportunity through a couple common friends that I've met in the apartment industry, uh, you know, mutual appreciation, respect. Uh, but then they introduced me to one of the investors was more this Red McCombs uh, funded group called Fraser McCombs. And I, of course, loved McCombs coming from the Midwest, being an, a previous owner of the Vikings and the Denver Nuggets. And, and just uh, just remember seeing him thinking, how cool would that be? And then you go down to Texas and you talk to these guys and they're doing everything from water rights to, you know, uh, land in Montana where they make money off of the wells and the mineral rights and, and uh, air rights and everything else. It's just unbelievable what these what these intelligent people can figure out. So I wanted to uh, be a piece of that part of that action and it was really really fun to get to so i had that small piece of that business i go in there and it, and it really wasn't supposed to be a turnaround they mm -hmm. thought it was this rocket ship that just needed the right guy you know <laughs> maybe that was a sales pitch yeah just need the fuel you know oh with your rolodex eric it's gonna be so easy you know and i get in there and because i think i'm that product guy and sales and mark and everything i go in and i look at and i talk to a few clients and I'd say, okay, what do you love about this product? They'd say, I kind of bought it because this previous sales guy liked him. So I kind of bought some <laughs> of it. And good. I would say, it's not good at all. No. <laughs> but you, I would find out that, that they wouldn't roll out the whole, they would buy it for maybe five or six of their properties. Maybe in, in, in you know, most business sense, maybe about 5%, 5%, 6% of their portfolio just to be nice guys. And once I saw the, you know, I hope the guy doesn't listen to this podcast, but maybe he does. But <laughs> I saw his expense reports and I saw why they bought from him. <laughs> the bar bills this guy put up in golf and everything else. I mean, my goodness, it would have been better just to buy the license himself. But um, uh, so he was no longer with us, you know, after that. But uh, but but it was it, it made it pretty apparent to me that the product was not what it needed to be. So sat down, took a step back. And also, you know, brought in a little bit more money from investors, but looked at the time horizon. And this is the time value of money and how much time I can have with these resources. And I had to make some tough decisions, which I, I thought I would left that behind at the corporate world. But I had to do that here as well, saying, oh, my goodness, this is not what I thought it was going to be. But you know what? I'm signed up. I like these guys. They trusted me. I have to do the job. And I, and I reduced the, the staff count, changed the business model. Uh, a little bit to more be more inexpensive but more scalable and able to get up to pro uh, profitability where we're losing 100k a month uh, to get it to profitable just really barely over break even and then flip that to real page again and uh, got the investors their money back and then a nice little return which made them quite happy and, and some of them invested in in the last couple of companies as well so uh, and then to your point sold to steve Wynn by talking to him and, and he, him saying you know, yep, this is great. This will be a nice addition. And last time I checked in, it's over a hundred million dollar business for them right now. Wow. Uh, so the team did really well, and I and I felt really great. My, my favorite thing was about some of the team members, uh, even though I just did the transition. But knowing that up front, being honest in the sales process, some of those team members 
took on some very high leadership roles. Um, uh, one of the gals, uh, Dana, did an amazing job. She was leading that division up until recent, and I pulled her over to inhabit, and now she's the GM over there. Uh, oh, but cool. it kind of goes back to those culture. You get people yeah, that you people. work with, that you trust, you know, are, are quality, and, and then you bring them along for the ride, you know, ethically and within all the legal bounds, which I, of course, waited <laughs> until those uh, times have expired. Uh, but um, uh, so I think, you know, seeing that it, a couple of things, it's, it's being upfront about the sales process, saying what your expectations are. There's no surprises. And then and then everyone can win if it's a true value add on all sides. Sure. So what you didn't really mention in there was product. Yeah. Um, you know, you were saying that they were kind of, you know, doing it as a nice guy. Do you think there was just not a, not, there wasn't a product market fit? Do you think there wasn't a lot of customer discovery to really nail the solution? Um, and, you know, basically that was part of what they ended up doing and then aligning it, you know, both from a cost perspective. Was there a lot of functional stuff that they had to do to make that work? Great, great, great insight there again. Uh, the, the product, it was something the market needed. So picture like an Amazon.com. But you restrict all the products down to a to a limited set uh, at a property uh, for like refrigerator or or paint or like Sherwin Williams is a big partner or or uh, or your carpeting and and we could restrict that down so a, a maintenance tech you know would just go and click and drop down and choose the ones that that he or she wanted uh, for that property they didn't have to think about it that was nice so yeah. great solution very much needed the problem was is you didn't have many property managers that wanted to pay a buck, two bucks a unit for that for that right to have restricted information. They didn't see the value enough, um, uh, so so that was an issue. Also, the setup was very time intensive. You know, going down to what type of batteries do you want, yeah. or what? It, it was just so many skews. Yeah, yeah, so it was really it was it was not a scalable platform. So I think it goes back to great product, great idea, not scalable. The price was not a, a market fit. Um, so, yeah, but the product was a fit. It's just if you're going to give it away, great. You know, works for Silicon Valley guys, but not for, you know, for, sorry. <laughs> it works for, you know, it works in that, in that vein, uh, but it doesn't work in a mindset where you need to be profitable and have, have a great revenue stream. So that, that didn't really fly. And that's where what I did is I, is I spoke to enough of these vendors and I saw that they were paying, they were paying us money just to have our restricted list. So I could yep. say, okay, this property is a Sherwin-Williams property. And then I would keep out all the other paint shops. And then we'd yep. have, this is where one of our team members would go through and say, oh my goodness, you, you use this paint from Home Depot and this and this. this. If you would just consolidate, you're going to save yourselves $10,000 a year. Oh my goodness, no brainer. And Sherwin-Williams yep. gets more. So they'd give us a cut of the action. So we flipped it around and said, we'll yep. give this to you for free. And we focus on the big four, you know, carpeting, yep. paint. Yep. And that's, that's when it changed. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's a that's a pretty cool insight, right? Because basically the business model was wrong is basically what it yes. was in that. The product was right. The business model was wrong. Yeah. Um, yep. And so, you know, that happens a lot, right? I think you, you come up with the idea, you, the value property should be there, but it's the, the, the right pe- person isn't the one paying. So Exactly. That's right. That's right. You can sell yourself on any idea. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then after that, you did apartment jet. And, uh, yeah. and, and you know, that's you and I spent a little time on this one. I think that mm-hmm. the concept was kind of interesting. So maybe talk a little bit mm-hmm. about this and the timing, because I, I think you you did this and you built this before COVID and you sold it before yeah. COVID. That's and right. in a lot of ways, man, like that stroke of luck uh, was mm-hmm. super good, because if you had continued yes. that and done that through cool. COVID, you, you know, the story may have been very, very different. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a couple of unicorns, you know, billion dollar plus companies 
that are no longer around or, or went under during COVID for exactly that reason. They kept on going. And um, uh, so I was running East Supply Systems. I was starting to go through the process of, of selling the company uh, and, and was at a, one of our conferences and heard these executives on a panel. And it was about what to do about Airbnb. And uh, the brilliant guy up there from Airbnb, Harvard MBA, trying to say the right things, but saying all the wrong things. You know, like, hey, wouldn't it? Isn't it awesome that your residents can list an Airbnb? Isn't that great? They're like, and how does that profit us? It's like, no, we're making zero money, and we're getting more and more wear and tear, and everybody hates it. And he's like, but think about your residents. They're like, are you just leave now? And he totally missed the mark. Uh, so I kept on seeing that and I, and I'll never forget the, the day I put the, the real page poster, you know, the, the, in my, in the booth, we were, we sold the NEA in San Francisco. So the marketing team from real page walked over, put up, we literally signed the docs that morning with Steve Wynn, pulls up the, the banner, puts in now a real page company. And, uh, that, that afternoon I was in the court furniture office or in their booth saying, okay, tell me about how it works to move furniture around. Cause my initial thought was that. Oh, we whenever there's a vacant unit, we just put furniture in there, rent it out until it was rented, and then and they said, "Are you kidding me, Eric? Have you ever heard of bed bugs?" And I'm like, "Well, I kind of like, yeah. Every time we have to move furniture out, we have to take it to a warehouse, we have to process it with chemicals and kill all the bugs, and then send it back. That's not going to work." I'm like, "Okay." So all these little things. That's where it's that product market sales everything mindset going into it. And then I just start doing the numbers, uh, but eventually partner with TransUnion for background checks, and that's mm-hmm. through talking to these execs saying. What do you need to feel comfortable with that? And that's where it really built up momentum, built up that platform, kept it really small and, and light, um, raised a little bit of money, network ventures, you know, and, and others. As I uh, appreciate that. <laughs> it's up to you if you want to share that or not. <laughs> exactly. I was an investor in that one. Yeah. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Tata's part. Yeah. And I was very happy with that. So yeah, hopefully it was, was too. Good. Yeah. So appreciate the validation. And, um, uh, brought in, uh, brought in just one round of investors. Uh, found them first in Chicago, and and got them on board as a lead uh, network ventures with Jeff Maders and team, and uh, kept it really small. I mean, we were even out of a WeWork initially, and in Chicago as a group called 1871 as well. Built it up, started to get some larger clients, and started to get our revenue cranking, and then we started to have conversations as far as our integrations with Airbnb and Verbo, and, and not quite Booking.com yet. Uh, but it was fascinating because uh, there's actually a guy out of Minnesota who comes down to, to our offices in Chicago, and uh, he's with Verbo, and it just just friendly chatting around. It was really the biz dev guy, you know, and we didn't we didn't know at the time. We thought it was more of a partnerships, uh, but what they were seeing was that our average daily rent on our multifamily units were getting probably two to two and a half x of what they were receiving on their um, on their vacation bookings because mm-hmm. these are in. Chicago, Nashville, yeah. Austin, yeah. great downtown city places. Yep. Yeah, great locations, getting a ton of ton of money and a ton of occupancy too. I mean, we're talking 70-80%. Just unheard of numbers for these guys. And they start seeing this going, "Man, this is going to be huge." Yep. And uh what we didn't know is they had already begun conversations with a quote-unquote competitor of us called Pillow that was helping the residents list their units. Uh, they were not getting them the financial transactions as much, but so so in Pillow's model of that of that resident, that was our phase two, and we we're already architecting that. And we're because we're pretty excited engineers and entrepreneurs. We're sharing it with this guy. This is our vision, and in his mind, he's going back to Seattle corporate and going, "If we don't buy these guys, they're going to replace what we just bought," you know, in like six months. 
and and even worse, if Airbnb buys them after we make this move, it's really going to get ugly. Uh, so we're very fortunate they came so in they and made buy a nice at the same offer. Time? I thought for some reason that they you did. No, they did. Oh, okay, they did okay. buy the same. They were looking okay. at them. Yeah, sorry okay. if I missed gotcha. one, but the, yeah, they're yeah. looking at them, and then the and then they bought us at exactly the same time. You were right. Time. Yeah, within yep. days. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. yeah. The president yeah, pretty- or the CEO of of Pillow and I were on a panel. It was women in asset management for Graystar. It was like this big big event, and he and I are on stage, and we both have these you know grins on our face because we're just you know we know we have very big checks coming little did we know that it was us together you know we're yeah. both picturing our names in the billboard at, at near at the times square which we had to share it's like what <laughs> <laughs> really i have to share this moment with this guy yeah and he felt the same way, so. <laughs> exactly funny. right yeah we're crying crying all yeah. the way to the bank so not too bad <laughs> i don't well, no, no one should no one should feel bad yeah. No, it's just a, it was just a cool story, and, and the timing yeah. was just really good. And so, it was great. and then you know your time at, at uh, Expedia was interesting too because you know I think you know that just the market wasn't really there for both of your products, and so mm-hmm. you had to find to add value while you were there. And and then right. you know and so maybe talk a little bit about your time at Expedia again, a larger organization going from a startup to a larger organization, different skills, run differently, uh, a lot mm-hmm. of competing, um, you know agendas uh a lot yes. of thin margin businesses in that one uh which yeah. is mm-hmm. difficult too i mean i knew it well from yes. a travel perspective um mm-hmm. and so yeah i'm just kind of interested from your standpoint on, on on what that experience was like it was a night and day experience from from real page whereas at where at real page it was definitely a ceo led steve win you know everyone everything had to go through steve if you want to get something done whereas at expedia such a large group um, Much more and this is before, yeah, exactly. Very decentralized, but also unless your numbers were so massive, I, I, I was in a meeting one time and I just can't even make this up. One of the executives leaned over and said, uh, and it was about our business and pill. And they just said, I don't even know why I'm in this meeting. This is like 0.5% of my business. What is the point? <laughs> like I'm sitting right here, <laughs> like, and, but that was his perspective, you know, it's just like, why am I even in this meeting? You know, once he saw the numbers and it, it was just so disheartening and yeah. that was tough, tough to experience. You're going, okay, maybe I'm not so special now, you know, yeah. and that was tough to stay motivated in that environment, even though we're building something pretty cool and they still need to compete with real page. I'm sorry, with uh, Airbnb and is, uh, you know, now shut down and, uh, during COVID. And even then, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, persist, persist, persist type guy. So even during COVID, we completely retrofitted our platform so that we could support uh, nurses and first responders. And the idea was that uh, you would use our platform to book uh, first responders and such, because New York City was the first place that was getting really hit hard by COVID. And we were we said, okay, you can use our platform, whether multi not multifamily, but you use it for for the hotels because no one was staying in hotels for business. And we built that. We could do our background checks and do do all this validation and stuff. And it was just one of those things. Someone just said, "It doesn't matter." And just we couldn't get our brains around the point that we're so small to matter, and that we're like everything matters. But you know, and then on the from the flip side, when you're that big, yeah, when you're billions of dollars and you know you have Clinton's on your on your uh, on your uh, um, you know advisory board and your board of directors, you know that you don't worry about tens of millions of dollars you're worried about hundreds of millions and billions of transactions Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, a couple of things there. I think I agree with you. Like, I think even at Concur, you know, it's like when we were coming up with new product ideas, if it didn't generate $100, billion or $100 million in five years, you're kind of like, okay, mm-hmm. is this worth investing in? And so that yeah. is a, definitely a different way to think about it. I mean, you have a it massive is. distribution channel, so, you know, product right. matters. And so there's, it's different. The second piece I was thinking about was like, I mean, do you think that the product actually um, has a home? Like, do you feel like even today, like, you know, I don't, I don't know what they're doing with it, but do you think it ever yeah. gets resurrected? And does this problem need to get solved or it's just not big enough for them to go do something about? Um, a lot of those things. It's, it's not resurrected at, 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 uh, at Expedia right now. And I don't see it becoming resurrected. It's because you'd have to take the code base and put all the resources behind it as well. I don't see that happening. Is there a need for it in the marketplace? Absolutely. Uh, you're slowly starting to see more and more our short-term rentals in the multifamily yeah. space. You're seeing Airbnb had 18% of their bookings in the last quarter or greater than 30 days. Oh, so you're seeing yeah. actually the short-term rentals come into longer-term rentals. Longer-term and rentals, and yeah. there's uh, some of my friends, uh, uh, Zumper uh, in San Francisco, they now list short-term rentals on their multifamily site. So now you're seeing multifamily yeah. going there. And there's different concepts. Uh my daughter just graduated from Berkeley, so my wife and I are going to go stay at a, a, a property in downtown San Francisco. It's about, got 16 units, and it's basically a hoteling-type concept, no, yeah. not one front agent or anything. It's fascinating. Yeah. So that's definitely happening. So there's definitely opportunities there. And as more and more platforms are being automated, you know, automatic keys, locks, store locks, um, everything else, thermostats, and you just need a cleaning crew. Uh, it, it's going to become more and more commonplace. Uh, so I think it's definitely there, and, and I always consider resurrecting it. I just don't like doing old ideas. I like new things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> still, still yeah. could happen. Maybe I'll advise somebody that does it. Yeah, yeah. there you go. <laughs> Yeah. Well, let's keep going. So uh, yeah, after you finished that one, you went to Inhabit, and were they? They yeah. were kind of like a private equity group. Is that what they were? Definitely. Or? Yeah, okay. massive yeah. private equity. Uh, I was. I began talking to them while I was at Expedia, even before the pandemic hit. And just because um, it's such an exciting opportunity, and it's yeah. uh, taking these all these multifamily assets that they rolled together under one umbrella, and these vacation industry assets under one umbrella. We're talking about thirty plus companies that have been brought under. Uh, the first was Providence uh, uh, put in some equity. Uh, I mean, some 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 cash, and then you had Insight Partners, and then just before, kind of, I think it was probably like a precedence of me joining was Goldman Sachs put in money as well. Was one mm-hmm. of the last investors, so I. Goldman Sachs hit, and then I started, um, and actually, their their check didn't hit. Let me clarify that until after uh, after I had started. Uh, they're so just waiting some, on you. Huh? Yeah, yeah, maybe <laughs> just throwing it out there. Kind of a big deal. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but uh, it was cool though. It was good to see. I mean, they they were it, some of it was part of me joining because they had to get a leader with the yeah. space because a lot of the, the the leaders that they had did not have multifamily or experience and i had the vacation and i had the multifamily experience from real page had the vacation from expedia there's frankly not too many people in the world that have any yeah, cool. background so it's a yeah. fit and it was very exciting to go in um my intention was to come in you know as his chief strategy officer and then become ceo and take company company public mm-hmm. uh but it wasn't quite the case after i got in the door and some things were you know not not to way i expected them to be uh, but it was still very exciting to work with these different groups and organizations. I start with a vacation team, getting them aligned, getting some structures put in place, some sales momentum, uh, things such as you know entrepreneurs forget about is 
you actually can do price increases. And it was pretty wild, uh, you know, on, on the flip side now, how painful that is. But but we we're able to rate create significant revenue from these groups that hadn't done a, a price increase for probably five, six, seven, eight years. We're not yeah. talking egregious. I'm talking like 5%. And then also just doing right sizes with contracts and saying, hey, you yeah. know what? Yeah. Sure, that was your uncle's cousin that had a property and he wanted a free one or whatever. No, we're going to pay at least $10, you know, or something minimal. But that was really impactful to create about create kind of like a 30% revenue uplift. And that was pure EBITDA as well, which is the yeah. most fun thing without having to add any headcount, just execution. Right. Yeah. So and then yeah. I grabbed the the residential piece and, uh, and, saw, and continue to see growth uh, with an inhabit. And um, and just uh, kept on building up those teams, so it's pretty enjoyable. And brought some really good people in as well that are still there. Yeah, that price elasticity thing is kind of interesting because I think a lot of uh, startups go through this, right? They basically beg, borrow, and steal to get you to get on to start with, right? And so they yeah. they, they discount their price just to get them on. And then you're getting right. larger corporations, you'll discount. But then once you get to a point where it's like, okay, you've renewed for three, five years, or whatever. Uh, yeah. We've got some elasticity in that model where you're getting value mm-hmm. out of it. And so get you yes. back to what market value. Look at what your new deals are doing and basically close exactly. that gap. And so we've gone through just even my consulting stuff, a handful of mm-hmm. customers, exactly the same thing. Yes. Uh, once you start getting some market brand, then you have a mm-hmm. lot more probably uh, leverage than you think you do. Right. Spot on. And you just nailed that the word is market value, right? You do comp to comp and you say, hey, if you were to leave today, you're going to pay probably double or triple so how about we just go up like half of I'll meet you in the middle of double. How about that? You know, and which is a big uptick. Yeah, and especially when it, like the change management cost is pretty high, right? Like I got to rip yes. something else out and I got to go back in. So like, you know, mm-hmm. maybe not like it, but I, I, I think it's a it's a good point. Yeah. And sometimes I think You're a lot of entrepreneurs right. overlook that. Mm-hmm. So, yep, absolutely. So maybe let's talk a little bit about your your current stop, uh, okay to charge. Yeah. So, you know, I think mm-hmm. it, you're taking uh, an EV kind of trend that's happening with multifamily, and so mm-hmm. it's exciting. Where you know it's something that you know well, and then a space that's yeah. you know growing in the right direction with a long tail on it. And so, mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about that opportunity and what drew you to that. Yeah, so I'm at Inhabit. I'm walking the conference floor because I'm always looking for acquisitions, and I meet these guys that are doing access control. And almost in the corner of their booth, they have this this charger, this EV charger. And I'm an electrical engineer. I drive a Tesla. I'm like, okay, tell me more about this. And they come to find out, they're like, oh, we do access control. And, and we had a client in Hilton Head, high net worth individual, puts in an EV charger, and then starts to realize that when he's gone, his electrical bill just keeps on going up higher and higher. A local Uber driver driving his Tesla 3 <laughs> charges his vehicle and he's gone. Like, what? <laughs> that happens? And they're going, hey, could you guys help me out and, like, restrict this thing? It's like, it kind of makes so sense, funny. right? You're like, what the heck? Because, you know, they put their charger outdoors. They don't have garages or on stilts or whatever the heck these things are. Yep. So they um, they build access control and start putting in some, some financing. And I, and I met them, like, this is going to be huge. You know, th- no one's thought of it this way. Like multifamily, I'm saying you can restrict access in multifamily because right now they have these RFID cards they hand out or you pay by credit card or it's just free a lot of these places. So we're already like a step ahead of everyone else. Uh, so so left, left a inhabit and joined OK to Charge, uh, a partner with these gentlemen, building this platform up. Um, they had kind of the technology. Um, I brought the business model on top, uh, uh, annual subscription and then a revenue share component of it. 
um, really make minimal margin in the hardware because we don't make the hardware yeah. we're using. Yeah. And now we're hardware agnostic, working with Siemens, ABB, NLX, Zerova, all these different players, and really just building up a network of charging stations that are restricted to vacation owners, to multifamily. Uh, we have two of the NMHC top 25 as clients right now. Wow. And uh, and uh, so pretty exciting, just starting to build up that muscle. We have a couple of hotel chains uh, that have just started. Best Western added a few pro- uh, properties with us. And then uh, all the way back to my Oracle days, Oracle Hospitality, working with them, uh, landed a deal with Margaritaville in Panama City oh, really? Beach where That's they want to cool. restrict. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Uh, yeah. And it's just uh, – it's it's like I was sharing, you know, before the call started. Is that it's not taking off as much as I had hoped, uh, but I think what we, I mean we're a lagging factor to EV sales mm-hmm. and Hertz and Enterprise. They already said by the end of next year, twenty five percent of all their cars are going to be EV or be electric. Wow. Uh, wow. So people go to you know even the Black Hills. Someone gets a, a car at the Hertz or Enterprise. Where are they going to charge their car? They want to drive up to the Black Hills, you know, park their car at their vacation property. And then what do they do? They start getting out at twenty five percent. They start thinking, well, that's almost too late sometimes. Yeah. So that's yeah. where we're starting to get into that. It's it's a follow on mind. And then the, the second thing that caught me off guard is how much the insulation costs are, especially in these yeah. commercial properties. Um, anybody that's listening that doesn't know what they're going to do for college, go to be an electrician because there's going to be so much need uh, for that. These insulation pulling conduit, uh, putting in, uh, and there's going to be so much money. I'm working with Excel Energy. You probably know well out of out of the yeah. area. Yeah. And um, they're they're actually funding a lot of these projects just because they need to get get that uh, throughput going. So it's a very exciting time. Yeah, it is. It's interesting. I mean, this is a trend line that's going to go for a long time. You think about transmission mm-hmm. lines. You think about like there's all sorts of oh, yeah. kind of ramifications to the whole uh, mm-hmm. kind of supply chain that needs to happen over time if this that's continues. Right. Yeah, pretty cool. That's right. Yeah. Well, good. Well, you know, I was kind of wrapping up some of your career stuff. Like if you, mm-hmm. you've done a bunch of investment type of work too. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's kind of interesting as an investor, um, if you've been an entrepreneur, cause I think you kind of, you have a, a tendency to look for certain things. And so I'm kind yeah. of curious from your perspective, are there three things that you look for in entrepreneurs, whether you're working with them, you know, um, investing in them, you know, partnering with mm-hmm. them, is there anything there that you've kind of seen that you think are repeatable patterns that you look for? Yeah, it's mainly lessons learned, mistakes I made, and you always yeah. learn the best yep. when you did something wrong or made a mistake. Yeah. So, the, so the, probably the most important thing is kind of that old euphemism: bet on the bet on the jockey, not the horse. Yep. You know, bet the bet on the person who's leading the enterprise, not the product. Don't fall in love with the concept of the product. It's more fall in love with the person, if, if at all, because they're the ones that you're going to work with. They're going to be pivoting, changing, uh, working those concepts. And then, and then it's uh, that's the second part, and then or the first one. And the second one is kind of separate your passion projects from your investments, and, and make sure you know the difference. Uh, if you're if you try to mix those, you get yourself in trouble too, because if it's truly a passion project, you don't need a return. You're doing it because you enjoy it, and you enjoy the people and the concepts. That's all good, and, it, and if you push them too hard, that's going to mess up the conversation. For a, for investment, it's okay to say. Where's your quarterly report? What's going on? Yeah. What's your plan? Yeah. Where are you going next? And I think you're you're phenomenal at this, Todd. I actually envy your ability to dissect companies like this. I think you're outstanding at it. So it's a muscle I need to get better at. Um, and then I think I think the third thing is 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 be a participant and be a support. Uh, don't try to don't try to uh, drive these things and that and that because you don't live it day to day. Well, unless you are part of it day to day, that's kind of like the third part is that it's so hard. 
um, you're probably like me. You'll have to dive in and like get in. And then it's like, but at the same time, you're going, okay, I'm going to disappear for another month and they're going to be yep. doing this day to day. It's hard. Yeah. It's so hard. I'm still figuring that one out. So yeah. once you figure that out, let me know how that, how to do that. <laughs> yeah. I think it's tough. I think you're right. I think, yeah. uh, I think the first one really resonates with me because I think even the stuff we're doing with wildfire labs, I think we, we just bet on the individual, right? The idea, yeah. you know, if it's decent right. and interesting, that's great. But I think a lot of mm-hmm. it is that's an entrepreneur I want in my ecosystem. That's an entrepreneur I want to sure. work with. Um, and yes. so product will pivot. Business models will pivot. Mm-hmm. But the yes. core individual doesn't, um, and so I think yep, that one's really, exactly. really just resonates with me. So um, it's good. It's uh, and I think your last one too is kind of interesting, where it's like figuring out where to participate, where to add value, um, and mm-hmm. then making it so that you can have the flexibility to drop in, drop back out. Um, I think that's yeah. not always easy, right? And especially for it's people not. like yourself, where it's like you're an operator, you understand what needs to go on, and it's like, and there's a fair mm-hmm. amount of context to like add value in most cases, right? right. You need to learn a exactly. bunch of things to actually add value. Otherwise, you're yes. just kind of giving these glib high-level answers where they're kind of yes. like, okay, I don't know, that was cool to have coffee with Eric, but no value yeah. there. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, yeah. It's one of those things where, uh, oh, have you thought about, you know, you're going, <laughs> exactly. I have thought about that. Yeah, like, because well, I do this every day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, EV charging. Have you thought about solar? It's kind of big. Throw it out there. He's like, thanks. It's great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thanks. Add yeah. more value. Yeah, exactly. It's love it. That's good. Well, I love what you're doing with Wildfire. I'm excited to continue to see it grow and, and what you're doing for Rapid City. It's great. Yeah, it's a it's a big audacious goal, you know. But I think mm-hmm. um, you know we're early shoots are looking pretty good. Um, it'll be interesting mm-hmm. to see how it continues to evolve. I think we've got a lot to learn. Um, we've learned yeah. a lot in the last year, um, but it's uh, it hasn't been boring, Eric. So that's good. All right, so, great. great. The last I question I ask you is, and I, and I close mm-hmm. with this with everyone is, uh, what's the kindest thing anybody's done for you? Um, I think you know we talk about bits and bites, and we talk about all these things, and it's kind of I, I don't know, it's a business, right? And I think at the end of the day, this is about people, um, and it always kind of brings me back so i don't know if you have a story that you want to share that 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 maybe resonates with this yeah i i do it was um you know i I mentioned his name but it was uh uh, larry simonson a bit earlier he he would come to chicago quite a bit and um and i wasn't really involved in south Coast school mines in the beginning and um and he'd bring out come out and bring his jelly and things like that but it was It was an early luncheon because I was doing the consulting uh, project, and uh, and I had a chance um, a seating arrangement. I sat down next to Randy Baker, who was uh, president of Case IH at the time, another school of mines grad. And it was fascinating to me to listen to his experiences about how he how he you know was an engineer, was in sales, was in product, and all these things led to his role where he's at. And, and, and then I asked him if I could follow up and I just went up there and sat with him for about half a day and he shared his mindset. And, um, and for me, that was really transformative in how I, how, what I thought was possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that, that helped me to think about the engineering background you touched on earlier about being solving problems, about applying it to all these concepts. And I think that's half the battle, you know, coming from South Dakota you know, you can see where Harvard and Yale and everyone around them are senators and all these great, great opportunities and great rows of great fame until you kind of see it and kind of shake someone's hand and know who they are and know that, hey, I could do that, too. 
Yeah. It's difficult to see that vision until, until you've seen it up front. And I think that's that was a really big level of kindness to share that time and, and insight. And, and it was motivating for me. Eric, I just want to thank you for taking the time today. Uh, this has been a great conversation. We certainly learned a lot and appreciate kind of you sharing all of your experiences. Um, and really, I think there's a ton of things to take away from this. So thanks for taking the time. 